Um, but we'll be in Acts 8 tonight. So um, that way we're not too far off schedule on Sundays or Wednesdays. We're getting close to go ahead and printing off the new uh, uh, directory. So if you haven't made changes to your name or address or email, please do that if you can tonight on your way out so that we can get those printed. Um, if you want to add your name to it, go ahead and fill out a form and just set it in the pile there that's already there. Or if uh, you want your name off, just cross it off or whatever. You know, I don't want to be contacted by you people or whatever. That's fine. Uh, we won't be offended at all. Um, but uh, anyway, that's out there, and it's for you guys to use. That's why we have it. Call each other up for prayer or have dinner together or something like that. It's not meant for sales calls. Please don't use it as a list if you're a salesman or whatever. It's just meant for fellowship and, and uh, getting into contact with people. So that's, uh, that's out there for you. Um, also got a nice card from the police department and public safety for the gift we got them for Christmas and all. You guys can take a look at that. I put it up in the, um, in the uh, glass case there, so... Uh, anyway, that's that's that. All right, tonight we get into uh, the spreading of the gospel. It's going to go out now from Jerusalem into, into Samaria tonight um, and through an interesting way. We left off on Sunday morning with the death of Stephen. Stephen was one of the young men who was picked to take care of the widows, the Hellenist widows who weren't getting their daily distribution. And the disciples thought, well, we don't want to leave the uh, studying of God's word and prayer to serve tables. Maybe we could find some guys full of the Holy Spirit who could take this task on, and they did. And Stephen was one of them. Uh, We'll run into another one tonight named Philip, but um, it doesn't take them long from being available to serve God in any capacity to being used by God in greater capacity. Um, I'm not saying that serving tables was uh, menial or small, um, but it, it certainly is different from preaching the gospel to thousands of people and starting a revival. It is a little different than that. And so, um, you know, it's, uh, both are important, both are vital, but, um, but it is interesting that that's, that's the next uh, uh, paragraph. You know, they were serving tables and then um, mighty works were done through Stephen. The mightiest of his works was his death. Stephen's death, his martyrdom, um, at his sermon to those who had arrested him for preaching Jesus, um, his sermon to them was so pointed and so cutting, they gnashed their teeth at him and killed him by stoning. And uh, it's, it's his death that sparks the next chapter. It's what starts the persecution. It's the beginning. I think that's important to understand because it was an unjust death. He was a young man, as far as we could tell. I mean, we don't know how old he is, but he was a younger man. We, we assume from the scriptures the way it's written. And uh, it, was not, uh, it was not expected, you know. Um, at least by our standards, we wouldn't have expected it. Maybe back then they expected to die at that age. Jesus died at 33, and I don't know how old Stephen was, but um, it was a great loss. Some devout men carried him, it says, and and buried him and uh, took care of him because they didn't think it was right that he died. And we don't know if these were Christians or not. It might have been Jews, devout Jews, who weren't happy with the way the council voted. And remember there was a young man named Saul, uh, young enough or in in his prime is a better way to put it, who was a part of the Sanhedrin, who was a part of the the Supreme Court um, that was consenting to his death. And they laid their clothes those who were going to stone Stephen at his feet so that Paul would watch these or Saul would watch these clothes 
so that they were taken care of and, and uh, not stolen while they stoned Stephen. And the consenting doesn't mean, yeah, 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 go ahead and do what you got to do. It was more like voting. He voted on, on the side of killing Stephen. He was very zealous for it um, and not just uh, um, consenting. It's a mild word. We're going to run into another one of those phrases here in this chapter that's kind of mild compared to what it really should be translated because it can be offensive. Um, but since it's an adult Bible study tonight, uh, we'll go ahead and share the, the real Greek, I think, the way it should be translated here, um, because uh, it's important to have that power. So consenting, a mm, little more than that, consenting to his death, more, more excited about his death, approving of his death, uh, spearheading his death would have probably been a better way to put it. Okay, verse 1, chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death, Stephen. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they, the church, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. This was the beginning um, later on uh, in Acts 9, 1, Acts 22, 4, Acts 26, 10, Paul is going to elaborate on how much havoc he raised against the church. Havoc is like a wild animal tearing into its prey, ripping it, shredding it, shaking it violently, okay, is the idea behind it. He was frothing to do this. We can tell that... Um, just by the way, he talked about Gamaliel and knowing that Gamaliel was opposed to Stephen's death. Let these people alone. Don't be doing this sort of thing. Him being on the Sanhedrin, I don't know if Gamaliel was a part of the Sanhedrin or not. That was his teacher. There was a, there was a separation of philosophy at that point. There was a separation of belief between his teacher and his student. And, and that, that does it to a person. That can do that sometimes. It can cause them. Someone... Uh, to act in a, in a way that's not normal, that's over the top, you know. Um, not that you have to agree with all your teachers, but when your mentor, when someone who's brought you up or trained you up in certain things, and you think you know more than they do, there's something that happens there. There's, a, there's an arrogance that comes over a person, and with that arrogance comes um, just unnatural behavior, not, uh, not very thoughtful. And so this is happening. Havoc is being raised. Stephen's death was the spark. You know, uh, it may have been senseless violence towards Stephen. It may have been uh, meaningless. You know, uh, these devout men can't believe they're carrying away this young guy, you know, who's just starting in the ministry kind of thing. And what a waste might have been said, or what a terrible thing. This is the spark that ignites the fire that spreads the church over the whole world. It's so important to see that and to understand that, that God's ways are enormous. And when he does truly say to die to yourself, not just a little bit every day, which is important also. We need to die for our wives, die for our husbands, not, not taking a bullet for them necessarily, although that's in, in, you know, implied. But every day dying, you know, doing the dishes or helping or doing whatever you can do to make their life easier, dying to yourself. Also, martyrdom is a very strong, powerful tool that God uses. He uses our deaths in mighty ways. And Stephen is a great example. The first one, this spark is like, you know, if you can picture Flint on a rock, you know, you strike it and you can see that spark and boom, there it goes. 
Just what Jesus had promised in Acts 1.8. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the whole world. But before you do that, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for the power from on high, the Holy Spirit. And things were going and clicking right along and they were stuck in Jerusalem, weren't they? They just stayed in Jerusalem until Stephen's death. That's that strike. And this whole thing begins to uh, spread and cause these people, this persecution. It says they were scattered throughout all Samaria. That's the next step. Judea, that's Jerusalem in that area. Now they're into Samaria because of the persecution, because of Paul's craziness, Saul at the time, because of his havoc that causes everybody to leave. It causes everybody to scatter and to spread the gospel. It says, that they went into Samaria and devout men carried Stephen and buried him, but he wreaked havoc in the churches, not only carrying away men, but women. And the writer, Paul, or Luke, writes that in there because that's unusual. You just usually take care of the guys. That's, that's where the thrust of it, uh, the persecution should have been and would have been. But Paul was beyond that. Women too. He didn't care. Everybody was going to jail and killed, which he describes later on in Acts. It was the spark that ignited it all. So he went into the houses and began doing this, putting them in prison. Verse 4, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. That's kind of a, a funny way to put it. It you know, it's really means they shared the gospel wherever they went. It wasn't like they were all you know, standing on top of rocks and preaching the word, although that may have happened. But the idea was they were spread. and There were refugees all over the place running from this persecution. They'd be taken into homes. Why are you here? Why are you in our town? I'll tell you what happened. Jesus happened. And they would share this good news with every household. That's usually, that's how most evangelism takes place. I don't think maybe we grasp that. It's one-on-one, person-to-person. That's how people get saved. Sometimes an evangelist will do a spark or a huge thing. Sometimes a preacher may even get, you know, blessed and have maybe 10 or 15 people come forward or 100 if you're a big church or something like that. Most evangelism comes from you and me just talking to people one-on-one about Jesus taking time to answer questions and to listen to their needs and their, their skepticism at times or, or even confronting them about their sin one-on-one is a lot different than it coming from up here or coming from any pulpit anywhere. That can be easily ignored. You can easily tune that kind of stuff out. Oh, they're talking about sin again and not take it personally. But boy, when you're talking one-on-one and someone looks you right in the eye and I'm not going to look in anybody's eye right now and they say, you know, that's sin according to the Bible. That's hard to walk away from. And most people are, they don't yell at you right away, but they're like, yeah, I know, but, yeah, I know, but, yeah, but what? That's, that's what God's word says. And uh, it's not with me that you have the argument. It's with God's word. That's what, well, that's your interpretation. And just turn the Bible around and say, well, you read it to me. What's, what is your interpretation of that scripture? You know? It's very personal, that one-on-one evangelism, and that's what's happening here. They went out, they were spread everywhere, preaching the word, sharing the gospel one-on-one. Accidental missionaries, you know? Unintentional. I'm I'm going to Africa. Well, that's noble, but sometimes you're just an accidental missionary at times. You fall into that situation, or you've been praying for that open door to be led by the Holy Spirit, and there you find yourself in front of somebody who needs the gospel, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't what your plan was today. You didn't say, I'm going to focus on that person today. Boy, there you are, you know. Philip's going to be that accidental uh, missionary here in a minute. But anyway, that's what's happened to him. The, 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 the spark has, has started and the, and the persecution is forcing people out of their comfort zones into places they would have never gone before. 
I mean, you think, I'm surprised how many people who live, grow up, and die in the same town have never ventured any place, never left. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But we're kind of creatures of habit and home. Some people can just be like, no, I'm fine. Right here. I don't need to go any place. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if God wants to do something beyond Judea, if God wants to go beyond what you think is comfortable, since our lives are not our own anymore as Christians, since we've been bought with a price, since we've told him that our life is his life now, since he gave his life for us, can he do that? Can he spread you wherever he wants you to go? Can he push you out through circumstances? I mean, who would have thought? No, I, I don't know if anybody was thinking, this is the Lord that we're leaving, honey. I don't know what kind of conversations as they strapped their backpack and walked off with all of their stuff because they didn't want to be thrown in prison, you know. I don't know what they had in mind. And then walking along saying, why are you walking? Why? We had to go because Paul, Saul's crazy. He's arresting everybody. Why is he arresting people? Because of Jesus. And they're just telling the story. Well, who's this Jesus? He died on the cross for our sins. It was amazing. We received him into our hearts, and they're just telling their story. There's no intent to say, you know, I'm glad you've asked that question. This is the question all mankind must ask. You know, I'm not sure it went down like that. Preaching everywhere the word. They weren't shut up by persecution. They weren't intimidated by it. It didn't cause them to clam up, to hide, to go into a cave. They spread the word of God that way. That's what Jesus does. Someone who's born again, who's truly believed on Jesus for their salvation, they can't help but speak what he's done for them. It means too much to them, you know. Then Philip, he's one of the guys that got spread. He's just a waiter, you know. Well, there's no more Hellenist Jews around anymore. Spark, Stephen's death. Philip goes off, you know. And isn't that crazy? Out of all this havoc... Out of all this craziness, God's going to birth a work, birth a church, spread the gospel throughout all the world. Who would have thought, you know? It's better when things are calm. It's better when things are smooth. It's better when things are simple and predictable, isn't it? Not in God's economy. Not in his way of thinking, you know? I don't think anybody really understood when Jesus says, if I am high and lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. All the disciples had better plans than Jesus. They all thought they could do better. No, don't talk about crucifixion. That's not the way. That's not the way. No, no, no. It was. So Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Samaria. You remember the Samaritans? Jesus used them twice. Once with the woman at the well, and the other one was the good Samaritan story. Drove them insane, both situations. And here's why. 600 years prior to Christ, the Assyrians took over, conquered this part of Israel, this part of their land. They removed all the wealthy, all the best and the cream of the crop out of there and left the deplorable Jews, the the lowest of the lows there. And they brought in other countries. That's how they would do it. They would bring in other countries. And the idea behind conquering and bringing in other countries to mix is for people to forget where they came from, to forget their nationality, to forget their homeland, and they would blend them together. And that's who these Samaritans were. They were half-breeds, half-Jew, half-whatever the Assyrians brought into them. And they had children, and they populated, and that's why there was such a hatred for the true Jew against it. You talk about racism. One of the most racist 
areas, the Bible is so clear on this, on this racism. Absolutely hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans, well, they're half Jew. Yeah, but they're half Jew. Hated them. Absolutely hated them. When they saw Jesus talking with the woman at the well, they were shocked. Not just because he was talking to a woman, but because he was talking to a Samaritan. That's why when Jesus said the good Samaritan, as he talks about the priest walking by and all the people that were supposed to help, the good Jews. And he said, but then the Samaritan came along and did everything everybody else was supposed to do. That infuriated them to think of that. That's how racist it was. The gospel is a racism killer. It does. It wipes it out. When you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when the gospel comes into your heart and you believe on Jesus for salvation, none of that matters. People are people at that point. You see things the way Christ sees people. You see people. You don't see race. You don't see those things. We don't have a racism problem in America. We have a Jesus Christ problem in America. People need to know the gospel. That's what changes it. That's what gets rid of all racism. What if we told a different story today? What if we modernized it today? Once there was this evangelistic preacher who walked by and saw this man who was hurt, but ooh, didn't have time for him because he had a board meeting to get to. So he passed him by. And then there was, like, can fill in all the other people that we admire in this world. And along came an Egyptian-American from Egypt. He had that look, you know. He was a little darker than everybody else. And got that funny accent, you know, that guy. And he did everything that those guys were supposed to do. How does that make you feel inside? It's just a question, you know. How much has the gospel affected us? How much has it changed us and our thoughts towards mankind? Or do we still hold on to those things that maybe we learned from our grandparents and our parents? That stuff's still there. Using those funny words. I remember, I can't even say what my grandpa used to say sometimes. It just would roll off the tongue as if, as if there was no other word to use. He would describe things in such a way using derogatory language about a race. And it was just as natural as could be. And it was just a small chuckle in the room is all that was said. And I'm listening and I'm looking and I'm like, I don't, it doesn't feel right to me to say those things. It doesn't seem right to me. I didn't know Jesus. I just knew this is weird. It felt awkward. It felt uncomfortable to me. But when the gospel comes into the situation... The Samaritans are no longer Samaritans. They're just a people group that need to be reached But the gospel. And they received it. They received it. He preached Christ to them. He didn't preach Judaism to them. He didn't preach Christianity to them. He preached Jesus to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed, and lame were healed, and there was great joy in the city. Great joy! Philip was effective and a powerful speaker because he was filled with the Holy Spirit, because he was there on a mission from God, not on his own mission, but also because Jesus spent a lot of time in Samaria planting seeds talking to the woman at the well, the woman at the well running inside, telling the men of the city, come see the man who's told me everything about my life. And they all came running out to find out what he said. There were seeds planted there. They had heard about Jesus using him in the positive for his story of the Good Samaritan. They knew these things. They knew Jesus. Yeah, he was a Jew, but he was different. Yeah, he was a pure Jew, but he was different. 
He didn't hate us like the rest of them did. He was kind to us. He didn't see us as Samaritans. He saw us as human beings, as people in need. Jesus is a racism killer. It's wonderful to see. It's a wonderful work. Jesus, in the gospel, takes care of all of our maladies, every one of them. There isn't a problem in this earth that can't be solved from the gospel. It is the solution. It is. Because all problems, all sin, comes from a living a selfish life, self-centered, sinful, away from Christ, away from God, away from his law, away from his, his good, protective way. It comes from rebellion. But with the gospel, these things change. Great joy. There's supposed to be joy. There's supposed to be joy. Receiving the gospel, receiving Jesus brings joy to people. Not necessarily happiness all the time. Please don't misunderstand me. There's difficulties. I saw a recent little blurb on uh, well, it was a little video of someone that just said we need, yeah, I don't want to get into it. You'll know who I'm talking about. But um, There's a lot of rough and a lot of tumble and a lot of difficulties in the world. There's a lot of trials and tribulations. And my life doesn't get better by ignoring them. My life gets better by inserting myself in them with Christ. Does that make sense? Um, I don't want to just put out and forget and don't listen to those things so that my life can be smoother and easier, my mind's clearer. I want to go into those things because that's what we're sent to do as Christians, to go into the dark, to be amongst the dark, to be effective in the dark as light and salt in this world. It doesn't do any good for us all to, all us lights to congregate together. We already shine, you know. We already, we're already supposed to shine, but get into the dark and shine forth. Um, and that's where joy comes from. That's when we bring joy to those who are in the dark. In the Bible, it says that Jesus was the gladdest man. It talks about him as the Messiah, but it says he's going to be the gladdest man that ever lived. I don't think, I don't know. I, I don't, before I read that, I don't know if I ever thought of Jesus as the gladdest man. I kind of thought of, from the movies I've seen and the pictures that are forced into your head from things throughout, you know, pictures or whatever people drew, artist renditions of what they thought the situation looked like. He wasn't always happy, you know. It was more solemn and more... And I suppose they were going for holy, which is good. But I don't know if holy means somber. I think holy can mean joyful too, you know. Uh, anyway, there was great joy in the city. See, they didn't know where to worship in Samaria. They didn't know if they were supposed to worship here or worship there. They just knew they couldn't worship at the temple. So they said, you know what? Sour grapes kind of thing. Well, we don't want to worship in the temple anyway. We worship here on the mountain. This is where God first met us, so we worship on the mountain. It was this sour grapes thing. They would have loved to have worshiped in the temple if they'd been accepted. But they weren't, so they said this and that. And so you have that inside, and it's, it's a prideful thing. And there was this battle going on, but when Jesus comes and says, no, 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 you're not going to worship there, you're not going to worship there, you're going to worship here. Here's where you worship. That brought joy. What great joy to them. We don't have to argue about the temple anymore. We don't have to do that, you know. Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 11 says, I, I've come that you might have, your joy may be full. I don't want it to be half. I don't want it to be partial. I don't want to give you a taste of what it's going to be like in heaven. I want your joy full now. I've told you these things so your joy can be full. And it was. They were joyful. They were joyful. So these uh, Samaritans were their half-breeds. Um, 
You can look at Luke 9, verses 51 through 56. See, when they were leaving the town that had rejected him, the disciples, Peter and John, says, shall we call down fire upon these people? He says, you don't know what spirit you're of, Jesus said to him. This is in Samaria. You don't know what spirit you're of. You just want to use them as fuel, as fire. That's not, who, that's not what I'm here to do. See, the disciples came into the town or came into that area thinking, you're lucky to have us. Jesus has graced you with his presence here, and you've rejected him? Send down fire, we shall move on. I mean, that was their mindset, you know. And Jesus is like, no, 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 I'm planting seeds, you guys. Believe me, you're going to be back here as soon as I'm dead, and as soon as, you know, as soon as Stephen gets killed, it's all part of the plan. You're going to be back here laying hands on these same people to receive the Holy Spirit. See, they don't know that, but that's what happens here in this chapter. Now, they're in this city. Everybody's getting saved. You know, Philip's just uh, was serving tables. He got you know, spread out from this persecution into this, to the Samaria. Uh, so he's in the second phase of it. You're in Judea. He's in Samaria. And he's, next is going to be, you know, Paul's going to take care of the rest of the world, it seems like, by himself but, um, with some guys. But, um, so now he's there. But there's this guy. There was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Sorceries is always demonic. It's mixed with drugs and so on, and then they would go to the demonic. The powers he had were probably very real. No doubt about it. I don't have any doubt. I don't think he was, you know, had smoke balls that he'd throw on the ground and, you know, no Wizard of Oz kind of thing from behind the curtain, cranking stuff up. Probably very much, very much in, involved in the occult. And so the people saw that and were amazed at it and thought, this is the great power. And he took credit for it. He let them think that. Not, not the great power of God is working through me, but I am the great power of God, you know. Um, and so he's been living this life until these guys show up. These guys show up, not taking credit for themselves, but doing these signs and wonders. Philip is doing amazing things, but it's different. We need to be careful about that, um, not just us, but everybody in this world, because it's very easy to just see great things and mighty works and miracles and just automatically assume it's God's as the source. And it's not. This sorcery right here doesn't come from God, doesn't come from a relationship with Jesus or with God. You know, this is coming from Satan, so understand that. Because in the last days, it's going to happen again. It even says so. We're going to see these signs and wonders, real, true miracles, fire from heaven and all that stuff, all that the prophets were able to do, this Antichrist is going to be able to do also. And even the very elect, if they could be deceived, will be deceived. You've got to be careful about that. You know? Signs and wonders are fine. They're, they're fine. There's nothing wrong with healing people. That's great. I just want to know the source. I want to know who takes credit for it. I want to know who gives credit where credit is due. That'll tell me. And besides that, I want the Word of God. Signs and wonders don't change me. They emphasize maybe the power and where the Word of God came from, and that's important, but it's the Word of God that changes people's lives. I want that. So, Here's this sorcerer who's used to getting all the attention. Here comes Philip, some young guy, and he's doing amazing things. And people are, are believing on Jesus and the joy in the city because there wasn't joy before. See, if, 
this sorcerer, Simon, had been of God, there would be joy. But there's not. There's fear, and they give him great honor, and, and he takes it. Verse 12, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, it says that he believed. I don't know. Later on, Peter's going to come against that here. So whether he truly believed or not, or whether he said he believed, I guess we don't know for sure. Because of what happens here in the next few paragraphs, um, it causes doubt. I don't know the heart of man. Only God knows the heart of man. Um, but it will let it unfold, and I'll let you decide on your own, obviously. I don't think we have a clear, uh, a clear answer here. So this guy comes along, Simon, who was a sorcerer, decides to believe. He gets baptized also and continues with Philip, staying close to him, watching him, seeing the miracles, signs which were done. Not necessarily talking about the word of God, how it was affecting his heart, but he was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. He was attracted to that. I like that. I like what you're doing there. I've been doing this for a long time. This is, this is interesting, you know. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Fitting. These are the guys that said, should we call down fire? Last time they were here. So they sent Peter and John to them. Now they're different men. I'll give them grace, right? Who, when they, had came, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he, the Holy Spirit, had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. I don't want to make more, too much of it, but uh, it's hard to get away from it. These guys believed on Jesus. And they were baptized, which means they were saved. They received the Holy Spirit in them. But this is something different that John and Peter, when they lay hands on them, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. It's different. This is what uh, Jesus referred to when the rivers of living water will flow from you. It's one thing to be saved, and that's fine. They're definitely saved. What Philip did, they were saved. They had received the Holy Spirit. But this is different. This is an overflowing. These are special gifts given to them an overflowing of the Holy Spirit upon their lives. Um, and it's a neat thing. It's too bad, you know, I, I don't know if you can formulate it or not, but um, it's, it's, it's kind of easy to tell those who are, I don't want to say just saved, because that's everything, right? But saved and been baptized, they're really focused on their walk. They're really focused on self-improvement, on getting better, on doing more, on stopping sinning. And I think that's important. I think we should all have that. But someone who's been baptized with the Holy Spirit is pouring out into others, serving others, loving others, spreading the gospel, helping other people with their problems, not focused on themselves and their own well-being and their own walk with Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. I think we should all eradicate sin from our lives. I think that's important. But someone filled with the Holy Spirit has been special gifts and and they do. Rivers of living water. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 38. Rivers of living water flow from them that other people can drink from. It's not for them. Their life's not there anymore. It's not about their happiness. It's not about their guilt anymore. It's not about their innocence anymore. It's about other people. It's so healthy. It's so, so, so much better to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, to not only have the Holy Spirit in you, but upon you. That's how you stop sinning. 
You can spend your whole life in this first phase, trying not to sin, trying not to sin, and I can't conquer sin because I think too much about sin when I'm trying not to sin. And that's your whole existence. For years, people live like that. You get baptized with the Holy Spirit and you begin to put yourself in places where you don't sin because you're too busy serving other people and taking care of other people and making sure they're okay. I don't worry about whether my needs are being met. I make sure other people's needs are being met. And in the process, my needs are being met. It's so interesting how God works. You want to gain your life? You've got to lose it. That's what it means. How do I gain victory? How do I gain a better walk? How do I do this? By losing that. Stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about the others and pouring out, you know. And not in your own strength. It has to be a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. See, Philip, filled with the Holy Spirit just to wait on tables, has now been spread into this Samaria and people are getting saved and joy. Because, and many, works and healings and things were being done. and God was getting all the credit and glory for it. In fact, pretty soon here he's going to be removed from the situation. I'm not sure anybody notices that Philip's gone. They just keep on going. They just keep on moving. Philip is such a non-issue. If you didn't have the book of Acts written, nobody would know about Philip. He comes in, sparks this revival in Samaria, and he's taken out here in the next section. And then when he's done ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch, he's taken out again. It doesn't make any difference in the Ethiopian eunuch's life because he's tied to Christ. You see? It's beautiful. So, the Holy Spirit comes upon these folks. And I'm not saying that everybody has to have their hand, you know, have to have hands laid on them to receive the Holy Spirit. You just ask. You just asked. And the guys were saved in the book of Acts chapter 1, but then Jesus said, I know you're saved. I know you're baptized. I, I'm the one that did it, but I want to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, how many days from now, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait. And if you have not been baptized with the Holy Spirit, you need to ask God to fill you to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You may be saved, and the Holy Spirit's in you. But ask God to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, that rivers of living water might flow out of you to others. So important for everybody, for everybody. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He didn't want the Holy Spirit so that he could have rivers of living water flowing from him. He wanted the ability to give it. That's the difference here. I'll pay you money because that's all he knows. That's probably how he ran his business. You pay me and I'll come heal your mom. You pay me and I'll come whatever. By the power of demonic, of the occult, not through Jesus, not through God. But now he sees this. He says, hey, Peter, give you some money. You hook me up with that. I mean, I got a lot of money, man. Hook me up with that so I can give the Holy Spirit as I see fit. And he didn't understand. It comes from God. Jesus is the one who's going to baptize you or I or them with the Holy Spirit. John D. baptized with water, he said. But pretty soon he's going to come and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Bigger deal. Boy, Peter's response. Now, this is a new Christian. This is a baby Christian. Baby Christian Simon. You've got to be nice with baby Christian Simon. He doesn't know, right? Well, here's what Peter says. Your money perished with you because you thought that the gift of God could 
be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Wow. You know, again, not very seeker-friendly. Here's the thing. He receives it in a way. Simon doesn't say, well, I'm not coming to your meetings anymore. I'm not coming to your tent anymore. You're mean to me, you know. No, Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. He was terrified. He was scared to death. Peter gets a word of knowledge and speaks it. He doesn't say, well, you're a young buck. You don't know this yet, but you can't give it. Now, come alongside. I'll show you how it's really done. Now, be careful. Now, don't be saying those kind of things. That's what you used to do, but we don't do that anymore. No, he's pretty harsh with them. You know what? And that's what it takes sometimes. Some people, you know, you're careful. Others, you snatch out of the fire. People, some people, you're just snatching out of the fire. Simon's in trouble. Here's what Peter knows, and here's what Peter's trying to snap out of him. Peter doesn't think he's saved because here's how it should be worded. This is that phrase I was telling you about. You and your money can go to hell. That's the idea behind it. He said perish, he means hell. So you take your money and you yourself and you're going to hell at this point. Your money's going to perish with you. You're not saved as far as Peter's concerned. You're not redeemed. You've come close. You've come alongside the gospel. You've come close to church. You're attending. You're right alongside Philip, but you're not there yet. Peter has enough wisdom and enough love for this guy, Simon, to not say, come on and coddle him. He says, look here, buddy. You're becoming inoculated with the gospel. You're a little too close to everybody here. You may have got wet. You may have said you received it. But I can see in your heart you're bound by bitterness. You have wicked thoughts in your head. You're in trouble. And he pulls him there. He tells him that. I don't know how many people in church, in ours or any other church, are in that position. They've come close, they've sidled up, they've gotten wet, they have a Bible, but they don't understand it yet. It's not in their heart, it's in their head. I see the wickedness of your heart. I see the problem here. You've got a heart issue. See, you're supposed to have a new heart when you come to Christ. I can see that the thought of your heart is poisoned by bitterness and bound in sin. You are bound and you need to be set free. Tells him the truth. So important not to be afraid to tell the truth. Now, as the Spirit leads, Peter has a gift of the Holy Spirit, a word of knowledge, same word of knowledge he used for Ananias and Sapphira, remember them, who got killed for lying to the Holy Spirit. Same word of knowledge. Why have you lied? He just knew it. And he doesn't have a problem telling them the truth. So important. So important. Just as much as Philip was filled with the Holy Spirit, so is Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, laying hands, giving people the, or receiving the Holy Spirit from Jesus by the laying on of hands. doesn't come from Peter, but through Peter. So important to understand that. May your money perish with you. Some people think they can use their money that way to buy influence. They think money's a tool. It's, I give money if I, if I feel like I should or if I feel like I'm going to get my way, and I, I withhold my money if I don't think things are going the way I think they should be going. I've heard that from board members of other churches. 
That's embarrassing. What embarrassment to say that out loud. I'm not giving another dime to that place. They didn't do what I thought. You mean you haven't been tithing as an act of worship? You've been tithing and it's an act of tool? You're using it as a tool to get your way in the church? Your money perish with you. So dangerous. Singing, tithing, studying God's word, it's worship. It's because you love Jesus. It's because of what he'd done for you. Not because you, you're trying to leverage your way. You know, so dangerous. And that's what Simon was trying to do, leverage. Hey, give me that. I'll give you more money. How about you just give your money anyway? All that money you got from being a, an occult worshiper, why don't you just give all those finances away now? Not to me. I don't want it. Peter wouldn't have taken it probably. Just give it to the poor. Just give it away right now because you've gotten it through strange ways, you know. Boy, we got to be careful. So he says, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. And Peter doesn't say a word. Okay, you're in my prayers. Mm-mm. Because that's not how it works. Hey, would you pray that I don't go to hell? No. No, I won't pray that you don't go to hell. You need to pray that you don't go to hell. You need to have this repentance. You need to come to the Lord. You need to come on your knees. You need to be broken. You need to talk to him. Don't be coming through me. And no, I won't pray that you won't go to hell. For some reason, we think we're more benevolent than the Lord or more gracious than God or more loving than God by saying, yes, I'll pray that I can hold back his evil hand away from your poor, innocent soul. No, no, repent. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps. That's what Peter told him to do. Simon's response is, you pray for me that these things won't happen to me, and that's without repentance. That's just getting caught. That's just being uncomfortable in a conversation. So Peter doesn't say a word. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the the Samaritans. We don't ever know what happens to Simon. Maybe he did repent. Maybe he did pray. Maybe he took it to heart. Maybe he became a, a great man of God. I hope he did. Or maybe he became embittered and became one of their worst enemies because he got confronted of his sin. You just don't know. But it doesn't mean what Peter said was wrong. You know, either way. Verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. I want you to leave this, amaz- this beautiful revival that's taking place that you started, and I want you to exit the situation because I've got it under control and I've got another mission for you. I want you to go. Now there's two roads that leads to Gaza. I want you to take the one that's less traveled, the one that's desert. Doesn't make any sense. Did God not do his demographics? You know? Hey, these are the upwardly young mobile. This is the center of the town. There's a big crossroads here. If we build our church right here, there's good parking. It'll all come around. All flows, all traffic leads to God. Now I want you to go to the desert, go to the road that nobody takes anymore, the dirt one, the desert one. I want you to stand there and wait for further instructions. I love it. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go towards the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. That is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, um, and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. 
This Ethiopian eunuch had come to Jerusalem, had bought an Isaiah scroll. We're going to find that out later. And he's reading it in his chariot on the way home. Would have spent a lot of money to buy this scroll. They're not cheap. It's not like how we treat our Bibles today or how we treat books today. It'd be more like if you were in China and had a Bible. You'd treat it with much greater respect. Not, where's that Bible? Is it on the floorboard of my truck or whatever? I think I left it somewhere. I don't know where. Oh, that's right. I'll buy another one. No, it's like China where they shred and tear apart pages and hand them out to one person in each congregation so they can read, memorize it, and pass it around because they never know when they're going to get the Word of God again. So that's that kind of scroll. He wants to know God. He wants to understand who he is. He's come to figure it out. He's from Ethiopia. He's a black guy. Got it? Get the picture here. So now we've been to the Samaritans, the half-breeds over here, half-Jew, half-whoever. Now he's straight Ethiopian guy over here. And God says, I want you to minister to this one man. Revival, and then I want you to go minister to one man. Two different ministries, both important, both vital. Never know what the Holy Spirit's going to lead you to do. Never know what God's plan is for you. It's just to be ready and available every day. So here's this guy, rich guy, got an entourage probably. He's in his chariot and he's reading. So he's not driving the horses. Someone else is driving. This is like a, I don't know, prehistoric limo or something. But um, there they are going down the road. And he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake his chariot. I mean, moment by moment instructions here. Go to the road, okay, standing in the desert. Clip, clop, clip, clop, clip, clop, clop. Go take that chariot over. I mean, just, I love it, you know. Not even with an earpiece in his ear, you know. He's just hearing the Holy Spirit. Go talk to that guy. And so this guy's reading out loud because he can hear him. Do you understand what you're reading as he's running alongside this chariot? And the guy looks down on this eunuch, this really rich guy comes down, a really powerful guy, number two or three in the kingdom. He's in charge of the whole treasury. How can I, unless someone guides me? I need a teacher. That's interesting to me. I know the Holy Spirit's our teacher, and the Holy Spirit probably didn't need Philip, but, but he wants to use Philip here. This guy is reading the text. Understand, he's reading the Bible. He's reading Isaiah and not understanding what it says. And he wants to use Philip to explain it to him. Okay? Don't be, you know, be ready to do that for people. Well, you just read the Word of God and you'll get it. Maybe not. Maybe God wants you to spend time with them and explain it to them. You know, spend a little more time with them. So he does. And he asks Philip, come up and sit with, sit, to sit, with, to sit with him. And the place of scripture which he was reading was, it was a prophecy about the Messiah. How perfect is that, right? God's timing, you know. How long has he been reading the scroll? How long until he got to this section? This section is, let's see, uh, 32a, um, Isaiah 53, 7. So he's read... 53 chapters of Isaiah so far. So that's how long he's been reading this scroll. I don't know what that looks like in the scroll. You know, I know what it looks like in my Bible, but in a scroll, and he's reading it, and comes to these verses right when Philip is running by, he's at the Messiah prophecy. You know, God's timing is beautiful. And here's what he was reading. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a, a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Now, here's the thing. For a Jew who has not accepted the Messiah, this is a very difficult passage because it talks about a suffering Messiah. It's a very clear prophecy about that. And so for the rabbi to reject Christ 
to not have Jesus as being the Messiah and to have his Messiah not suffer, they have to change the meaning of the text to not be about a Messiah, but to be about the prophet Isaiah instead. That's the idea. That's how they would teach it, depending on which side you're on. If you thought the Messiah was going to be crucified, if you believed on Jesus for your salvation, you would teach this as a messianic prophecy about Jesus. If you weren't, and you thought it was going to be someone else, you'd say, oh, that's Isaiah. He's just talking about Isaiah there. That's how they dealt with the tough passages of the Scripture. They just changed the meaning. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Is he prophesying about the Messiah, or is he talking about himself? Because I've heard it both ways. You know? And boy, if Philip didn't know the Word of God, and if he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit, you can give the wrong answer. See how important it is to study Scripture, to know it, to let Scripture interpret Scripture? So important, so that we don't give a misinterpretation of the passage when someone asks us a question about some obscure passage. I've never read that, you know? I don't know. Study it. Know it. You don't have to be a Bible scholar, but definitely you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit or you'll never understand the Scriptures as they're written because He's the author. This is the sword of the Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit who uses His sword, you're just beating people with it, you know? You use it inappropriately. So, who is He talking about here? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this Scripture preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now, two things happen here. Philip says, or the writer here, Luke says about Philip, he just opened his mouth. That's the first step in ministering or sharing the gospel with somebody, just getting your mouth open, you know. Just saying the word Jesus breaks the ice and gets you going in the right direction. It's that little push you need to keep going forward, just saying it. Sometimes we're afraid to open our mouths. And Philip just opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus. It doesn't matter what point in the Bible you are, you can preach Jesus from anywhere. From anywhere. It doesn't have to be John 3.16. Well, I don't know about that passage, but let's read John. No, start right where they're at, you know. And so after they're done talking about this Jesus, he preaches Jesus to them for who knows how long. We don't have a time frame on this. They came to some water and the eunuch says, how come I can't be baptized? Hey, and, and, and I don't want to, well, I do. You can't push people. They've got to want to be baptized. They have to want to know Jesus. Philip is just faithful to preach Christ from that scripture. And the Holy Spirit does all the rest in their hearts. And then he says, can I be baptized? What's to prevent me from being baptized right now? What must I do to be saved? That's what he's getting at. That's what he's asking. Philip's like, if you believe with all your heart, you may. I want to encourage you with adults, you know, you parents with young kids, don't push them. You want to be baptized? There's a baptism this Thursday. You better become and be baptized. You never baptized, right? You be baptized? Okay. What you're going to do is you're going to get a really bad bath out at Mazingo. That's all that's happened with these kids. You can't push them. It's a whole other thing when you're in bed and the kid comes up to you beside the bed and pulls on you and say, hey, can I be baptized tomorrow? Well, sure, but why, buddy? Why are you talking to me about this now? I was just laying there thinking about it. Bam. Holy Spirit's got him. Holy Spirit's been talking to him. Jesus has been saying all the things that you thought you should have said to him, and maybe if I'd worded it differently, they'd have believed on Jesus. Whatever it is that was going on in your parents' mind, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit does it. 
that's amazing when God steps in and does it. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you don't want the moment to end necessarily as a parent. I don't know if you've ever experienced that before. but And it doesn't have to be at night. Any time they could ask you that question. But that's when you know. Let your kids get there, you know. Because then it's, it's, it's firmly planted. It's firmly seeded. You know, the roots are there. There's growth. There is an arrangement with between them and God, not between them, you, and God. It's between them and their Lord. They've been talking to him, and God's obviously been talking to them, and it's amazing. It's amazing. So he says, uh, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Enough said. Pull the chariot over. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now, when they came up out of the water, full immersion, not that that's a rule, but this is a full immersion baptism here, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he, the eunuch, went on his way rejoicing. Where's the follow-up? Where's the Bible study? Where's the help book? No, see, the eunuch thought from his own heart, how come I can't be baptized? And Philip just says, you can if you believe with all your heart that Jesus in Jesus, I do. Let's do it. And God says, okay, I don't need you anymore. Thanks, Philip. And this eunuch goes, I don't know where that guy went, but man, I'm on fire for Jesus. And there they go. And I mean they, literally, Jesus and this eunuch go off together and grow. And now listen, all of Ethiopia is going to get the gospel now from this guy. You know, you leave this wonderful work of God and you go over here and you minister to some guy in the desert and the whole country, another country is going to read, receive. And this is all you had to do with it. If Luke hadn't wrote about Philip, no one would know about him. But Philip was found at Azotus. <laughs> we don't have any of these in the Bible. This doesn't ever happen again in the Bible. I mean, he literally, he didn't like duck under the water and swim for cover and run off into some pass and no one could see him like, I'm gone. No, God literally took him and put him in the city. And Philip and this Ethiopian gets up and say, where'd he go? You know, placed him there. We only have a couple things like that. You have another situation where the boat immediately was at the shore. Jesus did that. Remember that? One time he calmed the waves and they made it the rest of the way. One time they were immediately on the other side. You see that? The other time is the rapture. Just like that. They're gone. Just like that. This is a neat one. Philip was just available. Philip was a waiter of tables. Philip was just full of joy and full of the Holy Spirit and full of Jesus. And look what God did with him, you know? But without Luke writing it, we'd never know. How many Philips have there been in this world? How many times have you been a Philip in this world? You know, amazing, right? So he finds in there. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. That's it. And Philip went on, and Philip went on, and Philip went on, you know. And that's how we close tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Philip. We thank you for his willingness to serve you and to be an example to us of how just a Philip, filled with your Holy Spirit, willing to obey the leading of the Holy Spirit, to go do and get moment-by-moment instructions, to open his mouth and to just talk about you no matter whether the person was of great importance, whether he was a sorcerer, whether it was Peter, whoever was in front of him, he just 
shared. He just talked about you. And God, I pray that for ourselves, Lord. I pray that we'd be filled with your Holy Spirit, baptized with your Holy Spirit, Lord. That a special pouring out of your Holy Spirit would be upon us, not just in us, not just salvation. Although that's so important, we're so thankful for it. God, we want to have rivers of living water flowing from us, God. And that only comes by your Holy Spirit. So we ask you, would you baptize us all with your Holy Spirit? Use us in any way you see fit, God. Help us to have our eyes open for these open doors for effective ministry. And when they open up, Lord, help us to walk through them. So simple, so easy. Philip never forced, never kicked the door down. They just opened in front of him and he faithfully walked through and opened his mouth. And God, help us to do that, to see those things. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.